0: Listening to shout for libraries in Edmonton on CJSR.
1: We're a group of library students at the University of Alberta who are interested in raising awareness about topics such as censorship, freedom of expression, and social responsibility.
0: My name's Jesse.
1: And I'm Rachel, and we'll be your hosts for this half hour of library radio. Thanks for tuning in.
0: Today, we're exploring student research here at the University of Alberta's School of Library and Information Studies.
1: First up, we have Celine Garno brennan and Larissa McLeod in conversation with Joanna Nemeth, a recent graduate from the School of Library and Information Studies, where she discusses the research she conducted as a student.
2: So I heard about this organization called um, Alberta Helping Animals Society, which helps um, those experiencing homelessness with pets um, and living in marginal living situations. So I decided to look into what type of information behavior they have. I wanted to see if public libraries should allow animals, essentially, because they're further barred, like they're not allowed in, they're already going to be judged by going into a library or stigmatized, and then
3: they're also not allowed to bring their pets in. Often we look at that person, but I mean, the pet is like the whole person, right? It talks about relationships person has. And so I'm just wondering what motivated you to research this topic?
2: Well, I guess it's just having um, my best friend be my dog for the last 10 years. I just kind of relate to that that group of people a little bit. Recently, the U of A Rutherford has put up signs that they stopped allowing dogs in the library and not that people would bring them into study, but they had put up signs now so I can't even bring my dog in to drop off books. We're technically not allowed to tie your dog up outside or leave him on campus alone but you're also not allowed to bring them in to drop off books. And you're not allowed to drop off your books outside unless the library's closed. So it kind of got me thinking about that a little bit.
3: That's really Mm -hmm. interesting because I did not know that shift. Didn't even know about that not tying up outside either. You said your dog's your best friend. Tell us more (laughs) about
2: your dog. I got him when I actually, after my first year of undergrad, and I was just having like a pretty tough, like transitional time. A lot of my friends had moved away and lots of people are always like inspired and impressed impressed that I've had him by myself for so long and like we've lived in lots of different places together and I don't really like being without him so during during my master's especially I had I've, I've had lots of anxiety throughout my life and often having my dog around made me feel a lot better like there was certain times like I would bring my dog with me to meetings and stuff and then I would feel a lot better and I wouldn't have originally wanted
3: to go to the meeting if I couldn't have my dog with me. What implications do you think your research has on our society today? So not just libraries but maybe society as a whole.
2: Well I had originally like hoped when I, this is like my hypothesis when I started my research was that I would be able to argue that libraries should allow dogs as I said earlier or animals in general. Um, but what I ended up finding out was I think what my research ended up helping with more would be just general um, knowledge of this group of people like this population that I think the first time I read anything about the population I was probably like in my teens and I'd always kind of like felt uncomfortable when I'd seen someone um panhandling with um with a pet like especially in the states you see that a lot and I was always like oh that dog is probably not doing well I realized that like often that those dogs are very well those animals in general are very well taken care of and these people are doing a great job taking care of them and they're doing everything they can to to help their dog and so you are Talking
3: about this association that you found, who, I'm sorry, I don't remember the name, what was that? Alberta
2: Helping Animals Society.
3: Or What are they doing to help these individuals and their pets?
2: Yeah, so they have um, a food bank they usually post it on Twitter, and then the word-of-mouth community, kind of, everyone gets there to get dog or pet food. And then they also help with uh, finding housing for that group, with registering the animals, because you're not allowed to register your animal unless you have an address, a permanent address you can give for them. And then they also provide veterinary care.
3: Have you come across any other structures that are in place at all? or?
2: Yeah, there's a few other organizations. Um, there's kind of a shelter intervention program that's kind of become popular. So one of, one of the parts of that is um, a pet safekeeping program where a different organizations will keep a pet either from someone who's in a Abusive relationship who just needs to hide their pet until they can get resituated. And then there's also just like people who, you know, their house burned down or they like say after Fort McMurray, like they had some sort of large issue and they can't have their pet at the moment because they don't have anywhere to keep it. Cause, C A W S, will help with uh, keeping your, like fostering your animal until you can take it back so people don't have to give up their animals.
4: And yeah. particularly because, like you're saying, these pets are such important connections for the people. Like, there, there's a relationship there. It's, yeah,
2: some yeah. of the big things I found about relationships was just, like, these people... Any of us, I mean, this is this affects all of us, but like they have a larger sense of responsibility, which helps a lot with mental health. Just like having a reason to get up in the morning, and even some of my other friends who have like um, bad anxiety and depression find having a pet can help them a lot with that.
3: It's interesting, especially with this move towards having therapy animals. Like we see this at the U of A, where mm-hmm. there's therapy dogs that come into the library. Generally, the rules for libraries not allowing
2: animals were that. There was, like, a health risk, you know, dirtiness, um, allergies, and also it might make some people uncomfortable who are scared of animals, Um, and then there's also always, like, the safety issue of someone, of an animal actually being aggressive to another patron. I found in my research, it ended up turning out more that these communities are very like word of mouth communities and they want to use the most informal sources and people they trust. I
3: find that really interesting, that informal Mm -hmm. information seeking behavior, because we interviewed uh, Kyle Marshall Mm -hmm. on sex in the stacks, like sexual education material in libraries, and he said There's very much similarity in that, too, where there's a lot of dependency on informal sources, too. Yeah, and
2: I think that changes a lot of, like, how we think about libraries because when I started school, I kind of went in thinking, like, I did my first research project on um, women experiencing homelessness and then this one on those experiencing homelessness with pets. And in both cases, I kind of expected to be like, how can I find the best novel for these people? And it turned out to be more that they needed, like, actual resources. They need to know which shelters they can go to. Um, where they are what time like how they can get their bus routes and that type of thing so I think the importance I found more in this research was more of a community librarian type like outreach going out to these organizations and seeing what they do need having um, resource pamphlets um, I read about one group one library who actually put resources like different shelters and stuff on these like big plastic pieces that the people could also use as like shelter from the rain which is really cool and you don't like originally think of libraries doing that much you're mostly like people think of libraries being like oh I'll get a nice novel there yeah. where's my Jane Austen I would definitely be interested in more research on the word of mouth community within those populations like living in marginal
3: living situations definitely did you find anything specific to the information seeking behavior of people in those in the informal that you may have not mentioned before I was basically inferring based on what resources were offered
2: and um, the, like other research that had been done on information-seeking behavior of groups similar. There was one study I looked at on women in rural communities um, who were in abusive relationships trying to find their way out, but they also had pets, so they often wouldn't leave because uh, the person, their abuser, had threatened the animal and they didn't know where they could go with their animal. Where they do kind of need more formal sources, uh, they might not have access to the internet. They also aren't part of the word-of-mouth community, So yeah, because there are lots of services offered for them, but you can't always find them.
3: You've mentioned other research you've done throughout your program too. I'm just wondering what for you is the most challenging part of conducting research in a classroom setting? I would say the big one would be a timeline. Like
2: I would love to have had more time to work on this, Um, but also I do realize like you meet everyone working on their theses and research is never really done. And the other big thing was like I didn't interview this population because there wasn't any research done on them and I didn't really feel like it was my place to do that until I knew that there was a need for it because they are vulnerable and it's not really like I don't want to waste their time doing research on that
3: you mentioned this idea of research never being done mm-hmm. so if you could continue what you're doing now or if you had to continue what sections would you really go into
2: um, I would definitely try and build up ideally I would like to build up a, like a resources pamphlet that we could give out to um, libraries and also so like rural libraries um, for people who um, either are fleeing abusive situations with their pets or just like maybe coming into our community from somewhere else and need a need a, are looking for what resources are offered for
3: them. No, that's a oh, very nice. like action oriented one too, right? Like that's a very action oriented outcome, which is nice when you've got all this theory behind you to actually be able to
4: apply it. So I mean, we've kind of talked about some challenges and some of the things that were great, but if you had to choose one aspect that you liked best about doing this research what would it be
2: well i had a kind of tough time because there wasn't a lot of research on the information seeking behavior or information needs of this group and so when i started the research over the summer it was just i just got to read about the population which was just really fun it was just kind of like so interesting and i felt like it applied to a lot of like my feelings and it was all like very emotional So that was basically just like background research on the population, but I really enjoyed that.
4: So out of curiosity, is there any particular biases that you've noticed that influence your researching process?
2: Um well as i said going like at the beginning it seems it seems pretty obvious that i am quite biased towards people who own animals um and i obviously very really like animals so i did go into the research i was planning to argue for allowing pets in libraries and as it turned out that wasn't really what this research needed so
3: I'm wondering, too, because I know that the way I'm goal-oriented, sometimes it's really tough to reconcile that change of plans. So how did you deal with that like, dissonance and that evolution of your project?
2: <laughs> well, luckily, I think Tammy, our professor, was just amazing because I was like very stressed out when I started to realize this was going in a different direction. And I went and talked to her, and she was just like so calm. And she was like, oh, this is totally normal. I'm really excited that you found different things. Um, so I felt quite a bit better after that. And I was still quite nervous going into our poster session but after I felt like I was a little bit more confirmed and I was able to talk about the research more during the poster session I felt quite a bit more confident then as well.
4: Looking forward uh, now that you've graduated you're looking into you know beginning your career are you hoping that you might be able to include some of this work and further work on similar groups?
2: I mean, I would be very open to it. I feel like there isn't, I'm not sure that there's a lot of space for it in an academic sphere apart from like publications, but um, I do feel like it applies quite a bit to a public library sphere where I would definitely like, like it's always good to incorporate other groups and not stigmatize, so...
3: Excellent. Well, thank Mm -hmm. you so much. We have one last question. Mm -hmm. This is the one we ask to everyone. So what have you read recently that you would recommend to our listeners? Uh,
2: So one relating to my research, I haven't actually read it yet, but it sounded really good. So I actually bought it during my research because I couldn't get access to it. But it's called First Home Forever Home, How to Start and Run a Shelter Intervention Program. And it just talks about like, um, really different versions of shelters. And it's by Lori Weiss.
4: That
0: was Joanna Nemeth discussing her research through the School of Library and Information Studies here at the U of A. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Shout for Libraries.
1: Today we're talking with student researchers from our very own School of Library and Information Studies.
0: Let's now take a listen to Catherine Bratland, a second-year library student, talk about her research through the U of A.
5: Hey, I'm Catherine Bratland and I am a second year SLIS student.
3: Thanks for being here, Catherine. Okay. We are having you here to tell us a little bit about your research in the context of a research, an advanced research class. At SLIS. What was your research about?
5: I looked at sort of uh, looking at information behavior on Reddit uh, more specifically with the uh, the Brock Turner case um, from earlier this year, seeing how div- three different subreddits talked about it. So I looked at Men's Rights, Feminism and News, those three subreddits, just to see uh, what kind of conversations they were having around it and their information sources that uh, that they preferred. And yeah, it was uh, pretty enlightening, pretty depressing to <laughs> to research.
3: For our listeners who might not know the case, can you give us a quick summary of it?
5: Yeah, definitely. So in January 2015, Brock Turner assaulted a young woman on the Stanford campus. There were two uh, eyewitnesses who who intervened and uh, detained Brock Turner until police arrived. It happened this year. And yeah, most of the controversy around it was basically... White privilege is definitely one of the big ones um, just because, you know, Brock Turner is an affluent white male and he got an extremely light, just like ludicrously light sentence. Judge Aaron Persky sentenced him to uh, six months in prison. He ended up serving three for good behavior. Part of the reason of it, and this came up in my research, because California's laws surrounding rape and sexual assault, rape is very uh, specific in terms of like the how they define the crime. It's penetration with a penis. So technically, they didn't find him guilty of rape. It was like sexual assault and I think penetration with an object or something. And this came up a lot, like, particularly in uh, when I was looking at, like, the R News subreddit. The reason why so many headlines couldn't, like, they didn't call him a rapist is because they felt like they couldn't, just because, like, technically under California law, Brock Turner was not a rapist.
3: In yeah. terms of their, like, legal definitions, yeah, he wasn't. And that was
5: one of the, like, something in the aftermath that they were like, oh, maybe we should, <laughs> maybe we should change this because this right. seems pretty ridiculous that, that, yeah, they haven't really updated their definition of, of the crimes
3: so that's really interesting like we talk about language a lot in the show i find it just it's a subject that keeps coming up so that's another element of language and how powerful it is in yeah. information and information seeking behavior too yeah. and what motivated you to start this research why did you say this is what i want to look at
5: i don't know like anger I guess I was just like so like so many other women just fucking livid Um, when when Aaron Persky said yeah he only needs six months because we don't want to affect poor little Brock Turner's future like I don't know if I know a single woman who just wasn't just so outraged about it and men too like men of course should be outraged about that. So yeah, just like I was really angry and but at the same time, like, how can I kind of channel this into, you know, doing some some research around, you know, what I'm doing in school and he got like, like he got released, like right before the term started. So it was just like really fresh in my mind. About how much I hated him, so-, <laughs> so it's like, hey, this seems like it'd be something really interesting. Like a like, especially because a lot of the conversation around it on Reddit would have picked up again right then. Like it's like if I looked at the timestamps, maybe that's something mm-hmm. for future research. But kind of looking at like the peaks and valleys of of his mentions on on reddit in these three, in these three subreddits i imagine it would have been you know around the sentencing around um the his release and that sort of thing so
3: i find that really interesting that emotion and how we both laughed it was like a rage laughter <laughs> yeah, there yeah. um Like, for research, there's this talk of, like, neutrality, too, right? So, like, this idea of taking something emotional and, like, deconstructing it. And you talk about the scientific process. But, of course, we're all going to have our biases. Mm -hmm. What other biases do you think you brought to this research? And what were you really hyper-aware of?
5: Yeah, like, I didn't really think about it going in, like how much my emotions around the case would, uh, would affect, especially like my data analysis, just because, you know, when I'm looking at, when I'm looking at the men's rights subreddit, of course, when I'm gathering data from that, I'm going to see it in a very particular way, just because this is a community that I have, you know, like no love for, like, I'm, of course, I'm going to see all of their conversations framed in a particular way. So definitely, I think there is a risk of, you know, bias in, in analyzing that data around them. And like the feminism subreddit, I'm a subscriber. I'm not an active contributor to that subreddit, but I'm a subscriber. I'm very like familiar with, with that subreddit. So I guess that's another bias as well.
3: I guess also like that feminist framework, did you use any feminist frameworks in looking at this? Because I know that would frame the context in a slightly different way if we're looking at it that.
5: Definitely a big part of it was, um, you know, was applying the theory around rape culture um, because I kind of looked at a few different theories, communities of practice, um, information worlds, and those more kind of to do with the pure information behavior side of things but then looking at the larger kind of like cultural and societal implications of all of it I definitely um, you know rape culture had a huge role in that yeah okay
3: no that's really interesting just looking at all of these
5: things that affect it
3: also I'm wondering what implications do you think your research has on our society today or even just the way you view our society today?
5: Yeah, one of the biggest implications I would say is around where people are getting their news. It's, it was interesting that they came from, like, a huge variety of information sources in terms of n- different news outlets and uh, and blogs and things like that. I think that there is always a risk of people, if say, if they're getting their news on a topic from only one source then I think that there's definitely a pretty big risk of bias, uh, especially if someone is, say, getting their news off of Reddit from a from a subreddit that can reframe, you know, a headline to better fit the worldview of their community. Say for, like, in the men's rights subreddit, they were posting, you know, pretty benign headlines that you'd expect from just, like, a any, like, mass media outlet. But they reframe it in a way for it to be about, oh, consent is so... Murky and false right allegations are such a big deal. And if someone is just looking at that post saying, oh, like, I guess that's what the news is talking about, if they don't really realize, like, no, they're posting something that has a totally different message, but they're recontextualizing it to fit what they believe, then it could be... It could be an issue.
3: So, what is the role in libraries in this mm-hmm. world where there's these, like, this news that is contextualized in a way, or even the fake news that keeps popping yeah. up, right? Yeah. So, what is the role, or what implications does your project have?
5: I think that it brings to light the need for kind of promoting greater information literacy and knowing how to recognize bias in information sources particularly if you're if you're getting it from kind of like a second hand source like off reddit or facebook or something like that
3: just a little more about the content piece of your research too like if you had to say like Catherine's best tips for figuring out if you're looking at like a true or fake news story what would you start looking at
5: I'm not a, I'm not going to say that, like, the bigger, like, the most popular news sources are always going to have the best information. Like, just kind of going back to the Brock Turner thing, like, I know where they're coming from, like, not being able to call him a rapist in their headlines and all that sort of thing. But at the same time, when every single, like, almost every single headline is, you know, uh, he's a swimmer, you know, ex-swimmer, swimming, swimming, swimming. How is it going to affect his swimming career and his the rest of his future and blah blah blah? I think that it's necessary to take that, you know, with a grain of salt. Like even though that might be the best way they can come up with to frame the conversation, just to keep themselves out of hot water, just you know have some critical thought about it. With this case, just for example, there's definitely a diversity of opinions because like a lot of the information sources, you know, some of them were from like you know ABC, NBC, CNN, but on like men's rights and feminism, they're a lot more open in terms of you know their information preferences. Men's rights had a couple from you know there was from from like a. Libertarian blog, and you can imagine how they're going to frame it. Mm-hmm. Whereas, um, you know, the feminist subreddit had something about an art project that, uh, you know, was dealing with the aftermath of the case and a petition to, uh, like, recall the judge from the bench and stuff like that.
3: I want you to talk a little bit about the process, too, like this meta discussion of, like, what is research for you, I guess. Yeah. I'm just wondering what was the most challenging part about conducting this research, about your process, in the context of doing this in a class?
5: Like, I'm very deadline-motivated, so I found it really difficult to kind of keep myself on, like, a really good schedule throughout the term in terms of, like, completing the project. So, yeah, that was probably the hardest thing, was just kind of, like, keeping myself on a timeline that made sense and wasn't just, like, totally bonkers
3: what did you like best what was best about doing this research
5: satisfying my curiosity of okay like how was this actually discussed by these communities because I had my assumptions of course but it was like okay well can I is there a way to kind of um, either confirm or sort of you know I don't know what's the opposite of confirm (laughs) reject Reject, totally reject reject my assumptions of of how this was actually talked about yeah and it's definitely like it'd be super interesting to see how you know how someone else would analyze the data like you know if i asked a men's rights activist to analyze the data you know what what uh conclusions would he come up with well
3: thank you so much for being here Catherine. i've got one last question for you too and this is the very library question that we have. So what have you read recently, either connected or not connected to the case you looked at or your research or research in general, that you would recommend to our listeners?
5: Asking For It by Kate Harding is uh, her book that she uh, that she put out last year all about um, rape culture mostly dealing with uh with you know um the states and canada but it was a very uh interesting book and then after you've done that one if you want to lighten the mood a little bit um check out how to win at feminism that reductress just put out earlier this year because it is so hilarious and if you want kind of a primer on you know their sense of humor you can um check out the reductress website and it is super funny as well so
0: this month we're starting a new segment a reference desk where our team of crack librarians answers any questions you might have. In case you don't know, one of the core skills for librarians is reference services, where library staff help people find answers to burning questions or help point them to resources they're interested in. With me now is MLIS student Chris Joseph, who's found a question to start us off.
6: Hi, Jesse. I ran across a question posted to Reddit just after Christmas, and I thought it would be a great one to tackle. This was posted by a user named Cargall1. I found this awesome-looking clothing set from a store called Live Streetwear Company, but it seems like the price is too good to be true. Is it a scam? Has anyone used it and found it to be reliable? I'm trying to surprise my boyfriend with the outfit after Christmas and would appreciate any help.
0: I like this question because it touches on something we all struggle with these days. The whole, I found a thing on the internet and I'm not sure if it's real. And in this case, since there may be money involved, it's good to be skeptical. So, what do we know about the website itself?
6: Well, it's at co, and at first glance, it looks totally legit. Yeah, it's a typical online
0: shopping site. They have some nice photos, men's and women's clothing. It's all categorized. Seems pretty
6: typical and up-to-date. I agree. But if you scratch the surface, you might have some more questions. So at the bottom of the site, it says they're powered by Shopify. Have you ever heard of a company called Squarespace.
0: Yeah, yeah, I have. Uh, it's a service for creating websites. You
6: sign up, pay a monthly fee, and you get easy tools and templates for creating a nice site. Exactly. Shopify does exactly the same thing, but it specializes in online stores. So this site looks really good, but since they use Shopify, it's probably based on a pre-existing template. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just evidence. The first real problem I find is actually in the bottom of the page. So why there? Well, most sites put all of their fine print down at the bottom of the site. So it's a great place to start if you're trying to figure out how trustworthy a site is. It works for shopping sites, but it's also a great tip for online news sites and other sources you might be looking at. So what did you see there? That's my first red flag. They have an About Us link down there. And when you click it, you get a page with some Q&A, an email address, a Twitter account, but no phone number And no mailing address of any kind. So if I order something from these folks and something goes wrong, I can't call them and I have no idea where they're located. that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, Not really, but the lack of a phone number is a little concerning. I mean, most major online shopping sites at least have a toll-free number of some kind. Uh, But you're right. It's not enough. So the next question I would have is related to the reputation of the company. What are other people saying about them? Well, they have some reviews on their site. Yeah, but I don't trust those necessarily because they're not independent. I'd be interested in seeing what other people have said about the company, and here's where more red flags start to show up. Oh? Yeah. If you do a Google search, just a simple one for live streetwear reviews, you find their Facebook page, their Twitter account, but almost no mentions of the company from any other source but themselves. And there are links to their YouTube channel, and they've posted some videos, and the videos have low view counts, and a bunch of them have comments underneath saying that the site is a scam. Ouch. While we've been talking, I went to Reddit
0: and searched for Live Streetwear there, just using their basic search bar.
6: Yeah, Reddit's a great place to look. I mean, it's a huge online community of very opinionated people, and if anybody else has had an experience with live streetwear, they'll post it there for sure. I found an old
0: discussion there about the company. Nothing screams scam, but there are a few comments saying that the merchandise is cheap replicas and not the real thing. So where does this all leave us?
6: I think the original poster was on the right track from the start. I mean, something made Cargol One think this seems too good to be true, and I think that's a good gut instinct. Uh, as for everything else, uh, the lack of contact information on the website, the lack of independent reviews for their products, uh, possible sale of knockoffs and replicas, and the lack of any real like digital trail for the company leads me to suggest that Cargol One should probably keep looking for a deal and not spend any money with live streetwear.
0: Well, sounds like reasonable advice to me. And there we have it. If you have a different view on the trustworthiness of live streetwear, we'd love to hear about it. And if you think that this segment is interesting and want to submit a question for us to investigate, drop us a line. You can contact us on Facebook and Twitter at Shout for Libraries.
1: We hope you enjoyed our exploration of student research at the School of Library and Information Studies here at the University of Alberta. Please check us out on Twitter at Shout4Libraries. That is Shout, the number 4, Libraries. And don't forget to like us on Facebook at Shout4Libraries.
0: Once again, this has been Jesse.
1: And I'm Rachel. And we have been your hosts for this half hour of Library Radio.
0: Catch us on the next episode of Shout4Libraries.